we have been doing a series on the parables, and it's always worth reminding you the reason Jesus began to teach in parables was not just so that his sayings would be more memorable. He did teach in forms that were very memorable, but the parables in particular, um, he begins to use parables after the first year of his ministry. After the first year of his ministry, that he has three years of public ministry, it's in year two that he begins to use parables. And the reason he begins to use parables is when opposition rises to what he's saying. And so as we look at these parables, what you need to understand is there's always kind of two groups, really three groups that he's trying to, to reach with these parables. One are the people that don't like him very much and aren't on board with what he's trying to do. Uh, this parable we're going to look at tonight is particularly uh, one of those, and we're going to see the context that Luke tells us why Jesus told this parable, and it's important if we would rightly understand this parable. But there's also the disciples who are following him, but they're still kind of clueless of what's going on and what his real end game is, particularly the idea that he's going to go to the cross uh, is not something that, they're, that they get, and when they get hints of it, they're not into that very much, and they try to stop him and dissuade him from that. And then there is the crowd. The crowds are the ones that he looks on with great compassion and great love. And he says a lot of very critical things about the church leaders, particularly with the way they regard the crowds. Jesus, it said, was a friend of sinners. He ate with them. And that's a significant thing. Eating in the Bible is not like fast food. Uh, it's more akin to what you might find in other cultures. Like when we uh, spent a summer in France a few years ago working with some churches there, like eating is a several-hour, um, very relational experience. And that's the way it is in the Bible, too. Um, eating with God in communion is a big deal. And eating with other people is about rich relationship. So when Jesus is eating with sinners, it's a really big deal because... What he's saying is, these people are my friends, and I want to be with them. And in his world, the religious people didn't like that very much. It's still kind of that way, I think, isn't it? And it's why I think this parable of the prodigal son, or what you really would probably be better called the two lost sons, we're going to do part one this week and part two next week. But part one is about the prodigal son, who's very obviously disconnected from his father's heart and runs away. And um, Jesus tells this story in the midst of a context where people are criticizing him for eating with sinners. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 says that very thing. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, that's the Jewish leadership, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And I, I tell you, it seems that regardless of the fact that this passage is in the Bible, people that are self-consciously aware that they don't deserve God's love often feel excluded by religious people. It's still that way, isn't it? Jesus tells this parable in particular for that problem. The problem of religious people feeling like they have more of a right to be with Jesus and don't like it 
when people who haven't earned the right by keeping their life you know, on the up and up try to get near to him. That's what this parable is about. That's why he tells this parable. Look with me, if you will, at Luke chapter 15. We're going to jump down to verse 11. Next week I'm going to talk. It is actually significant that there are three parables in a row all about something that's lost. We're going to focus uh, on Luke 15, the first half of, of uh, the prodigal son parable tonight, and I'm going to tell you next week why it's significant um, that there are three parables of lost things because that more relates to the second half of this parable. So you've got to wait on that. We're going to jump down to verse 11. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But this son was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Pray with me briefly. Lord, we do thank you for this story, this powerful story, this familiar story. We pray, Lord, that you would bring new light, new heat from this, your holy word, even through the foolishness of preaching. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, why does Jesus tell this parable? 
He tells this parable because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were particularly um, hated in Jesus' day because they were people who had sided with an in an unjust government, right? The Romans were occupying Israel. And these tax collectors were Jewish people who had decided to work for the man. They also did all kinds of unjust things. So they're bad people, the tax collectors and the sinners. We don't know exactly what that means, but they were notorious, right? And the Pharisees can't imagine that God would eat and share rich relationship with sinners. But I want you to understand that when Jesus tells this story, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Jesus actually, in telling this story, is retelling the story of Israel as a nation. Now, I don't know how much you all know about the Old Testament, but there's a very important part of the Old Testament where there's a guy named Isaac. Maybe you've heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Isaac was an important patriarch of the Jewish people. And there's this famous story, important story, where he had bad eyes because he was very old. He was supposed to give a blessing to his oldest son, Esau. And instead, Jacob, the younger brother who should, should not have gotten the inheritance and the blessing, snuck in, pretended to be his brother, and Isaac ended up giving the blessing to Jacob. Jacob means the deceiver. Jacob is the deceiver. And then he hightails it out of there. And he's off running away. First, he dishonors his father by tricking him. He sins against his brother, and then he takes off. Now, what happens? Does God just let him go? No. God pursues him, appears in the form of an angel, and wrestles with Jacob until dawn. At dawn, he changes Jacob's name to Israel. Now, the reason this is an important story, you can maybe see some of the parallels of a son who dishonors the father and then runs away. This is Jesus saying, you guys are upset with me eating with sinners and tax collectors? Why? Why are you upset with that? Don't you remember the, the very story that defines who Israel is and what it means to be God's people. Origin stories are very important. The origin story of Israel is about a deceiver who was pursued by God. God wrestled with him and gave him a new name and a new identity and said, you'll no longer be Jacob, the deceiver. You will be Israel. Israel means he who wrestled with God. And the Pharisees have forgotten that very important story. And Jesus tells them this story. Jesus is saying, you, in criticizing me for eating with sinners and tax collectors, have missed the point of how you even came to be Israel. It was not because you were good and righteous. It was because God pursued Jacob the deceiver in his grace and wrestled with him and gave him a whole new identity. Your identity is a deceiver who was tracked down and trapped by God's grace. So Jesus wants to turn upside down 
their idea of what it means to be beloved of God. And the way he does it is by retelling the story of how they came to be who they are. And, and I would just say this. If you're someone who follows Jesus, I don't know if you think very much about how that came to be, but I would just tell you that story of how you came to be a follower of Jesus is very important. It really matters. It really matters. Now, there, there are a new number of places where I could point this out. Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 tells people who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, he wants to remind them and maybe even deepen their understanding of their origin story. So he tells them this, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive. It is by grace you have been saved, and this not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. You see, it's important that Christians, that people that follow Jesus, understand the origin story correctly. It has everything to do with who you think the kingdom of God is for. So as we dig into this parable, I want you to understand that, that this is really about how do you come into a relationship with God in the first place. And that origin story has everything to do with the kind of people you welcome into your life. So what do we see about the situation of the prodigal son? We'll look at that first. A um, couple things to point out to you. He behaves wretchedly towards his father. He's not just greedy. That's not the problem. When he says to his father, give me my inheritance now, every, every Bible scholar will tell you that what he's really saying is, father, I wish you were dead. The inheritance would never be settled until the father was dead. So this is a request that not only is inappropriate, it is, it is insulting in the highest degree. Not only that, but he, he basically says, Father, I wish you were dead. It's amazing that the Father in his grace actually grants the request. But then the kid liquidates the property. Now, this had to have been done in a public way. Uh, real estate transactions in the first century in the Middle East take years to accomplish. Lots of back and forth, this and that, okay? So for him to liquidate his part of the estate in just a few days so that he can take the money and run, it had to be done publicly. And that means this insult that he's given to his father is now a public insult. And he's brought shame upon the entire village. Now, most of you don't, don't live and weren't raised in a shame-based culture. But let me tell you, if you were raised in a shame-based culture and you did something like this, you would have to leave forever. Not just because of what you said to their father, but the way you insulted the entire community. So, he leaves. The whole village knows that he's insulted and shamed his father and his family. And it doesn't take long before he's miserable, right? Right? Um, in some ways, you know, it, there, there's, even in the, uh, in the Greek, it says it in a really strong way that he says he hired himself in your English translations, but it says he glued himself to this Gentile. He basically connects himself to this non-Jewish person, and pretty soon, he's feeding pigs. Now, the Bible, actually, the story doesn't say that he spent the money on prostitutes. You know why you think that? Because that's what the older son says. 
But Jesus doesn't say that. It's probably more of the slander of the older, older brother. It's more telling about the older brother than it is the younger brother. But he wastes the money, and pretty soon a famine comes to be. Now, in the Bible, famine's regularly associated with God and his providence bringing a wake-up call. And so it is with this kid, because he finds himself in a pig pen. Okay, remember, Jews don't really like pigs. They don't eat pigs. They don't handle pigs. They don't raise pigs. And the least of all, you would never find yourself as a Jewish boy wishing that you were a pig. Because in essence, that's what he gets to. He gets to the point saying, I wish I could eat the food that the pigs are eating, but nobody's giving him any. This is about a mis as miserable a position, a place as you could be. Right? Yet, yet, he's still not completely broken of his commitment to find his own way out. And this is key to understand this parable. Because most people, I think, don't really get how astonishing this parable really is. Um, Kenneth Bailey, who's an expert uh, on the New Testament, and particularly the parables, has taught really his whole career in the Middle East. He's passed away now. But he said, you know, what's interesting is, you know, most, most um, people, most Christians really, think of this as a story about how if you come back to God, then he'll be merciful. And he says, you know, that's, Islam has that understanding. And um, yet this parable is actually not about that. This is not a parable about how if you come back to God, he'll receive you mercifully. That's not what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. What distinguishes Christianity is something much bigger. Now, let me, let me help you understand what's going on here. Um, it says that he came to his senses. And there's different ways to translate that. But look what he says he's going to do. And look at the speech that he makes, right? In, in verse 18, he says this, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me, or some translations get the Greek even more uh, better, where it says, make me as one of your hired servants. So he's got a plan. It's a plan motivated by him kind of getting a sense of how miserable he is, but it's also motivated by a sense like, why should I have to suffer like this? My father has lots of hired men, and they have plenty of bread. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix this situation. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to tell him I'm sorry. And then I'm going to demand that he give me a job and let me be like one of his hired men. That is not true brokenness. It's not. It's a demand. It's saying, look, give me this. And it, here's how you know it's not true brokenness. Because he doesn't desire a relationship with his father. You remember, he didn't just take the money and run. The problem is not really that he spent the money. The problem is he insulted his father to his face and said, Dad, I wish you were dead. And his little plan doesn't have anything to do with fixing that relationship rupture. His plan simply is about getting food in his belly. You understand? There are a lot of, lot of people, I think, that, that think maybe they've really come to God, but maybe they've come to God because they're miserable and they're demanding that God give them something. And I don't know about your experience, but my experience is God generally doesn't honor that kind of deal very well. 
I, uh, I, I, don't know if, I, I don't have time to tell the full version of the story, but I, for many, many years, you know, I, I think I really became a Christian more in ninth grade, and I remember very specifically, I had a sense of my sin, but what I really wanted were friends. If I'm honest, what I really wanted were friends. I saw all these Christians, they seemed to, to, to be friends, and I didn't have any friends. I was desperately lonely. I thought maybe if I kind of get in with this group that maybe, maybe I'd find some friends, and it seemed for years and years and years, almost like God went out of his way to thwart my attempt to find friends, at least the kind of friends I thought I needed. And years later, really actually after I'd finished seminary, I um, had had a, a professor in seminary tell me that there was a lot of anger in my life. And I was like, well, I'm not an angry person. I was angry before I became a Christian, but since I'm a Christian, I haven't been angry anymore. You know, I just basically just kind of stuffed all that. But I was at this sermon, and a guy was preaching on anger. And I was back in St. Louis where I'd been at seminary, and I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I remember that professor a couple years ago told me that I had some anger, and I needed to explore that. And as the sermon went on, I thought, oh, maybe he was right. Maybe I am angry, as I heard the preacher talk about anger. And then as it went on, I thought, oh, I am angry, and I know why I'm angry. I'm angry because I've been a Christian for like 15 years. I went to seminary when I thought I would probably get married and wasn't sure I'd ever get married. I was still single at this point. And um, I, I feel like I've, I've come to God for friends, and he never gave me any. And he seemed to go out of his way to not give me friends. And the more that sermon went on, I began to realize I've been trying to use God as a means to an end. And um, he's still pursuing me in spite of that. Even tonight, as I'm hearing this sermon, I'm not only seeing that I'm trying to use God as a means to an end, but I'm seeing him pursuing me and say, Kevin, you can't use me as a means to an end. Demandingness always seems so reasonable. The kid's starving, so it seems reasonable to be able to go back to his dad and demand, give me this, but demandingness is never the way to approach God. So, at this point in the story, all those people that criticized Jesus for eating with sinners and tax collectors, how do you think they liked the story so far? I think they liked the story. Because the prodigal who insulted his father is getting what he deserved. <laughs> I mean, these people were the ones that thought Jesus was a little too soft on sin. Doesn't he know the kind of people he hangs out with? He doesn't really care about God's holiness or he wouldn't be hanging out with these kind of people. And Jesus is telling a story now where the prodigal gets what he deserves. He's miserable. But Jesus is drawing him in. Watch what happens next. The father in the story does something completely unexpected and shocking. And again, there, there's, there's a kind of first century cultural context that you need to understand to really understand what a big deal this is. Let's look at the father. What do we learn about the character of the father from this story? Well, the first and astonishing thing is he runs. Now, you may not think that that's a big deal, but in, in Middle Eastern culture, dignified men do not run. They don't run. And they would never do what they need to do to run, which is hike up their robes. Middle Eastern men do not expose their legs ever. Still that way. I mean, I, I have, you know, folks from Iraq that live all around me in my neighborhood. 
And you know, even in the hottest, hot days, they're wearing long pants, always. I've never seen my neighbor, Mr. Sadiq, run. I can't imagine him running. I can't imagine. It's not done. Aristotle said, great men do not run. <laughs> everywhere, everywhere in the ancient world, your dignity is connected to how slow you walk. You don't run. So the father runs. What's the significance of that? What's the significance of that? Well, the significance is he's taking the public shame that would have been directed towards the prodigal and taking it to himself. Now, to see this, you need to understand that all the pictures and paintings you've ever seen of this story are not right. Because they always picture what? This f field and farms and then a house up on the hill. And the prodigal coming over the hill and the dad sitting on the porch looking for him and then he runs out after him. That's not the story. Because farmers don't live on their farms in the Middle East. They all live in the village. Particularly if you're a wealthy man enough to have an inheritance that your sons would have divided. So the picture is of the kid coming back into a small town. Anybody from a small town? Everybody knows what's going on in a small town. And there's not a lot to do in a Middle Eastern village in a small town. So you better believe that when this kid makes an appearance and starts heading to his house, the whole village knows what he's done. And the whole village is going to come out and see what's going to happen when he comes face to face with his father. He's going to get what's coming to him. You can feel the venom start to build in the crowd as he's coming down the village street. And then the father does the unimaginable, hikes up his robe, exposes his legs, and runs to his son. And look what it does to the son. Look what it does. It changes the son. It melts his heart and makes him alive. The speech changes, doesn't it? All the demandingness is gone. All he says now is, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And the dad is like, shut up. Get the robe. Kill the calf. Get the ring. Give him shoes. We need to celebrate. See, the son does not complete the speech he planned. He planned to earn off his debt. But all of that evaporates when he sees the father taking all of the shame, all of the humiliation upon himself. As bad as what the kid did, what the father does is even more shocking. Now notice, the costly public love of the father is given before the son confesses. There's an important gospel lesson there. Paul says in Romans 2.4 that the kindness and mercy of God was designed to lead us to repentance. It's one thing to come to your senses because you're miserable and go to God and say, would you give me this and give me that and make my life better? It's another thing to say, Father, I've sinned against you because you see his character revealed in the costly love that's demonstrated, not just by running, but by sending his son to die a humiliating death on a cross. And make no mistake, the cross was humiliating. Paul in Colossians 2 says that as he suffered this humiliation, he actually humiliated the powers and the principalities by taking the law that stood opposed to us and with every right because we've broken the law, but Jesus took it and nailed it to the cross. Right? 
That's what the costly love is about. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What makes Christianity utterly unique is the Father doesn't wait for us to come back to him groveling and then say, well, okay, you've convinced me. I guess I'll give you a little mercy. That's not Christianity at all. It's not Christianity at all. Anybody that tells you that all the basic world religions are the same, they don't understand Christianity because that's not Christianity. Christianity is the Father demonstrates costly love that changes the speech, evaporates the plan to try and work off his debt. It's gone. Not only that, not only that, the meaning of the speech changes. Before, when he was saying, Father, I've sinned against you, that was really a, a way of him saying, give me another chance to impress you. Gosh, I know so many Christians that are in bondage because they think that becoming a Christian is a new opportunity to try to impress God. And then you have the trouble of, well, what if I don't impress him now? Now I should know better. See, I, I meet so many people that they struggle with, well, I understand that God could forgive all my sins before I became a Christian, but once I become a Christian, I should know better. No, that's so not what the gospel is about. Now, I've sinned means I've got nothing. I've got nothing to give you except your own costly love. You know, I, I posted this quote by Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher on the Facebook wall. This is really one of my favorite speeches, this profound truth in this quote from Spurgeon. He says this, While I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Profound truth in that. What else does the father do? He lavishes blessings and kisses on his son. One of my favorite parts of this passage there is... This, the, the Greek there for kiss is a participle. It's continually kissing. It's not one kiss, a little peck on the cheek. It's kissing over and over and over again. And there's a whole thing about the robe and the ring and the shoes. What is that all about? Well, the ring is trust. It's the signet ring. It's how you sign documents, legal documents with that ring. And the father gives that trust to the prodigal. You might say, well, he didn't deserve it. Of course he didn't deserve it. That's the whole point. He gives him the robe, the best robe. That's honor. He gives him honor. He doesn't make the kid continue to grovel. He doesn't continually remind him, you really don't have a right to be here. Maybe some of you have been raised in families where grace was kind of given, but you kept being reminded of how much you owed over and over and over again. That's not what the kid gets. He gets trust. He gets shoes, which are dignity, and he gets honor in the best robe, and then he gets much, much kissing. We need, the much kissing is, you get to see here a picture of the father's indescribable joy. Again, there's just this amazing uh, quote by Spurgeon. When you might even want to read this. He did an entire sermon just on, and he kissed him. And it's an amazing sermon. Um, it's called Many Kisses 
um, for sinners. I put it at the bottom of the page for you to track it down. Um, listen to what, um, what Spurgeon says here. He says, the father's heart is overflowing with gladness, and he cannot restrain his delight. I think he must have shown his joy by a repeated look. I will tell you the way I think the father behaved towards his son who had been dead but was alive again, who had been lost but was found. Let me try to describe the scene. The father has kissed his son, and he bids him sit down. Then he comes in front of him and looks at him and feels so happy that he says, I just have to give you another kiss. Then he walks away a minute, but he's back again before long, saying to himself, oh, I must give him another kiss. He gives him another for he's so happy. His heart beats fast. He feels very joyful. The old man would like the music to strike up. He wants to be at the dancing. But meanwhile, he satisfies himself by a repeated look at his long-lost child. Oh, I believe that God looks at the sinner and looks at him again and keeps on looking at him all the while delighting in the very sight of him when he is truly repentant and comes back to his father's house. And then the father throws a party. But you know who the party's for? The party is not for the son the party is for the father. The father says, kill the fatted calf and go get everybody to celebrate that this son of mine who was dead is alive. Come celebrate with me that I have recovered my son who was dead. Party, it's a big party. A fattened calf feeds several hundred people. I don't know, I grew up in Maryland. We used to have bull roasts. I know, you know, here, like, you know, you can go down to Martin's and see him put the pig on the spit and turn it up. But in Maryland, they do bull roasts. Usually it's like political fundraisers. And it takes like a week, you know, to cook that thing. That's what's going on here. Like the fatted calf, it's a big party. It's a big party. Don't get mistaken. The older son thinks the party is for the kid. And he thinks he needs a party for him to celebrate with his friends. He doesn't care about the father's joy. He doesn't care about the father's joy. Do you care about the father's joy? Remember, Jesus is eating with sinners, and the Pharisees hate it. But when Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors, he's saying, this is what my kingdom is about. These are the people I like to hang out with. I don't really like hanging out with all you religious people. You're self-righteous. You could care less about the people who are broken and poor and wretched. I don't really want to hang out with you. I want to hang out with them. And you better stop criticizing me because you don't understand what my kingdom is about. You don't even understand who you are if you think that I'm not about eating with sinners and tax collectors. I've always been about that. Don't you remember who Jacob was? The deceiver that I pursued? That's who you are. And I think Jesus is not only saying... If you're one of these sinners and tax collectors, if that's how you understand yourself to be, then you need to understand that the Father delights to welcome and to throw a party. <laughs> and if you're one of the people who's been walking with Jesus for a long time, then there's a message for you in this too. We're going to develop it a little more next week when you we look at the older brother. But there is a point here. Jesus is saying... God's people should be about throwing outrageous parties for the gospel and for the Father's glory and inviting all kinds of people. Because Jesus isn't just saying, this is what I'm about. He's saying, if you love me, this is what you should be about too. Do you love the Father's glory 
Will you celebrate with him? Will you come to him and make his joy complete? It's an amazing thing. The father, who doesn't need anything, has somehow mysteriously linked his joy to people like us coming to him, throwing ourselves on his mercy. I can't explain that. I can just tell you as a preacher ordained by God that that is true. And that's the message of the gospel. Come to Jesus. He wants to throw a party. Next week, we're going to look at the older son who's not really excited about the party and is even more offensive to the father than the prodigal. And uh, we'll pick that up next week. Let me pray for us, and then uh, we're going to sing the doxology.